My Car Guru, Season 11, Episode 116. Hey folks, and welcome to another edition of My Car Guru. This is the place where many people tune in to figure out how to interpret what's going on in the news. Ford halts work on $3.5 billion EV battery plant in Michigan. Hmm, how do you want me to interpret that? How would you interpret that? You know, if uh, the press and the media are all so fired up about EVs and the impact that they're going to have in terms of shifting people away from internal combustion engines, is it going to be a big impact? Well, apparently, Ford is questioning that now. You don't halt the construction of a plant unless something has gone awry in the planning and in the forecasts, because I think... A lot of people are, a lot of people in the industry anyway, are reading the handwriting that's on the wall. People are screaming, we don't want an EV. Well, some people are. There's still about, I don't know, 6 to 10% of you out there that say, yeah, I want an EV. If you read the automotive press, all the surveys, they say, oh, yeah, 46 to 58%, I'm making up those numbers, of people say that they're interested in EV options. They're not. They're just not. I mean, very few people that I, I talk to are. However, I had a guy come in today. He wanted to leave his vehicle for uh, some repairs. And I said, well, why don't you drive the Mach-E? What's that? Well, that's the electric uh, Ford SUV or crossover. He said, okay, if you if you don't mind. So now he wants to, to buy it or to lease it. I suggested that he lease it. Just like if, if you're going to get an EV, don't buy it, lease it because we don't know what the technology is going to do. In the first, in the, you know, let's say it's the next three years. Uh, what's going to happen with EVs? Well, there's going to be more places to charge. That's for sure. Uh, we're going to have a level three charger out here on our lot, as a matter of fact, at a very high cost, but it's going to be here. You'll be able to charge at home. And if you live relatively close to home and you want to drive, I don't know, less than 300 miles uh, at a time, then you'll be fine. You won't be buying any gasoline. It'll cost you a whole lot less to operate. There's no doubt about that. You know, the question is whether it's going to apply to a larger portion of the overall population. And I say, nope, not going to happen. So Ford says, let's see what the spokesperson say. He said, we're pausing work and limiting spending on construction on the Marshall Project. That's what it's called. Until we're confident about our ability to competitively operate the plant. Now, I've never heard a comment like that from somebody that's building a multi-billion dollar plant. 3.5 billion. Well, but, you know, we're just not sure we're going to be able to operate this thing. You know, somebody should have been able to figure that out a long time ago. Somebody was, namely the CEO of Ford, has probably convinced a lot of people that this is what Ford needs to do. And there are some second thoughts based on the EV inventories that are swelling, not selling, and, uh, you know, just the general attitude towards EVs is waning. So it would definitely be a bad idea to build a $3.5 billion plant and sales tank. And so they got this big behemoth that they have to pay for or that has already been paid for, but you know, they've got a bunch of cash tied up on it. So, you know, at least they're 
thinking ahead, so I'll give them some credit for that. Uh, you know, the cost of building a car really does vary depending on a lot of different factors. All of it's not labor. And, you know, with this UAW strike going on, it's got to let a lot of people think, oh, my goodness, if the costs go up, if they want a 40% raise, does that mean cars are going to go up 40%? No, that's not what it means. Uh, labor is important, that's for sure, but the cost of manufacturing a car is basically divided into fixed and variable costs. Fixed costs include research and development, engineering, you know, running the facilities, and that accounts for about 16% of the total price. The variable costs include the cost of labor, um, raw materials, and other related things, which can change based on how many cars are made. Now, raw materials and auto parts are the biggest cost driver in the auto industry. That accounts for about 50, uh, let's see, what is it, 57% of the total price. And then labor cost will vary depending on the complexity of the car, the skill of the people that are doing it. Uh, shipping costs are also factored into manufacturing costs. You know, all those parts that go into a vehicle, uh, they have to arrive just in time because the, the plants that assemble the vehicles do not stock big inventories. They rely on just-in-time delivery of parts to the assembly line. It is a logistical miracle to see how all that happens. But don't panic. The UAW strike, even if they do get what they're asking for, it's going to have an impact on prices. But what will happen is you'll see more automation come to the forefront. Uh, they'll just lay off a whole bunch of other people. The union people will get what they want, and then the white-collar workers will be sent to packing. I believe that's what you're going to see because the fixed costs aren't going down. Things are expensive. Utility bills are expensive um, to heat and cool a plant. Just think all these plants, these massive plants are air-conditioned. I know the one in Dearborn at the Dearborn truck plant, they have figured out ways to reduce the dependency on uh, fossil fuels and electricity to cool the plant. They actually sowed a, a particular type of grass on top of the entire plant and it dropped the, the actual operating temperature inside the plant with no HVAC at all, 15 degrees. So just plant grass on your roof. It'll make a big difference. It wouldn't work on my roof. I've got an 812 pitch. I think the, the plant in Dearborn, well, I know that the plant in Dearborn is actually flat. But another thing they did, they reclaim all of the water that runs off that plant. Uh, even the parking lot outside is porous. And so it, that's, in other words, it's just, it's like asphalt with a bunch of holes in it. And it reclaims, or the, the way the thing is paved reclaims all of the water that falls on the asphalt. It gets sucked into the ground and recycled through the plant. So they have very little, matter of fact, I think they said they have zero runoff from the plant. That's pretty cool. So they're doing all kinds of neat things to try to be ecologically responsible. And that's what they're trying to do with EVs as well. But the problem is that the market just hasn't matured, and it's going to be a while before it does. Okay, I'll take my first break. I'll be back here in just a minute. Okay, I am back. You know, I do like a lot of modern things. I like my iPhone. I like my iWatch. I just downloaded the latest software upgrade, and I got all kinds of new watch faces. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, 
never mind. It's just a kind of a nerd thing when it comes to technology. But there's some technology that I could live without. You know, a lot of the complications that we get as far as automotive repair have to do with a lot of these modern conveniences because there are so many computers on our vehicles. And most of the time, let's say 95% of the time, I just made that up too, uh, everything works fine. But that 5%, rhetorically speaking, is a problem. It's just like the other day. Well, it's been a week now. I walked out to my F-150 getting ready to go to work, and I opened the door, and I hit the start button, and nothing happened. Um, battery dead? No, because everything else was on. It didn't say the battery was dead. It, it just, nothing would happen. It wouldn't even try to turn over. So I had a problem. So I called Philip. Philip is my shop foreman. Hey, Philip, um, my F-150 won't start. He said, try this. Disconnect the battery. Wait about 10 seconds and then reconnect the battery. I said, okay. So I got my little wrench out. had to go back into my garage, got the wrench, disconnected the battery, reconnected the battery. Voila, it started. So you can fix your own car. You know what a lot of people would have done is they would have called maybe the wrecker company to come haul their vehicle to the dealership and then had to pay a wrecker bill. One of the first things you need to do on a modern vehicle, now there may be some brands that discourage this, uh, maybe a Lexus, I don't know, but um, it works on most vehicles. If you have just, I mean, unexplained, won't start, uh, or you've got some really funky things going on with your instrumentation, like your infotainment system just goes black, nothing happens, you have no radio or anything, or if you're, you know, your dashboard, a lot of that's electronically controlled. Windows won't go down. You know, it could be just random things like that. Stop your car, get your wrench out, disconnect your battery. Now, if you disconnect the, the don't disconnect the negative side. Disconnect the positive side, the red part. What if you can't find your battery? Well, you should probably know where your battery is. Now, some cars actually have the battery hidden. And there's just a place where you can jumpstart the car underneath the hood. It's just a wire that goes to the battery. In that case, you might have to call the record company or the dealership. Say, hey, my car won't do anything or the infotainment system's not working. And they may say, they, you know, you may be under warranty and they send a tow truck after it. But boy, that's inconvenient. So what did I do after that? You know, after I got my vehicle running, I just drove it. It's just like kind of rebooting a computer system. Or your phone. How often do you reboot your phone if you've got a smartphone? I end up having to do mine. Mine's an iPhone probably once a month. Uh, I had to reboot my, let's see, what is this? A MacBook Air laptop computer. Had to reboot it today because it just locked up. Computers do that. You know, that makes me think about automated driving, self-driving car. What if you're on the interstate and you're surrounded by 18-wheelers and all of a sudden your computer decides to lock up on your car? Would that be a problem? A big problem. So, you know, you might want to think about whether you want to download that Blue Cruise or whatever the cruise control is called from General Motors or a Tesla. You know, because computers, they lock up. They stop working could be at a really bad time. If you are using some type of a self-driving technology, keep your hands 
close to the steering wheel. Pay attention. Um, they, they all give you the ability to take control. And if you read the owner's manual, they want you to take control. They want you to pay attention because the car could fail. You know, the, the sensors or the cameras or whatever could misinterpret the information that's going into them. And uh, I, I've had that happen several times on my F-150. I do have Blue Cruise. I stay alert. I keep my hands real close to the steering wheel, sometimes on the steering wheel. I think it's interesting just to put my hands on there and just feel the little adjustments that the computer is making in the car. And uh, when I get up b- beside an 18-wheeler, it gets a little bit closer to the 18-wheeler than I feel comfortable driving. I would normally move over just a little bit. It might might be only a few inches. Six inches feels like a lot when you've got a 23,000-pound 18-wheeler going 75 miles an hour beside you and maybe another car coming up on the left, and you just need to be diligent because that could turn into something nasty. Self-driving car accident statistics vary depending on the source, but here's some of the findings that I could dig up. In 2022, there were approximately 9.1 self-driving car crashes per million miles driven. That's hard to relate to those numbers, isn't it? Autonomous vehicles were involved in more crashes than conventional cars. So there's part of your answer with 9.1 crashes per million uh, versus 4.1 for conventional cars. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety found that while current self-driving technology could reduce accidents by around 34%, autonomous vehicles still have trouble avoiding planning and deciding what to do. In 2022, nearly 400 self-driving car accidents were recorded over an 11-month period. Car makers have to keep track of this stuff. They have submitted a total of 419 autonomous vehicle crash reports as of January of this year, 2023, with 18 definite fatalities recorded. All 18 deaths were level 2 ADS, ADAS cars. Not sure what that means. And no car maker has reported any fatalities due to a fully autonomous vehicle. That's because nobody sells one, except maybe Tesla. And they've had their product on the market, then off to market, then back on, and they respond to lawsuits and stuff. Anybody that that signs up for their self-driving or autonomous program has to sign a waiver. That's real comforting. Okay. I'm going to take my last break. I'll be back here in just one minute. Okay, I am back. Had a customer call me the other day and said, well, he's not a customer. He's a radio show listener. He was buying another brand, which is okay. And uh, he said, Lenny, I don't know whether to buy gap insurance or not. Should I buy gap insurance? And why is it so expensive? Well, gap insurance, first you have to understand what it is. Uh, Gap insurance is designed to cover the cost of the gap that exists when an insurance company settles with you on a total loss. So let's say that that you owe $25,000 on your car, and the insurance company is only willing to pay $18,000 because of the loss, because that's what the vehicle is worth, okay? And that's all they're liable to pay is what the actual cash value of the car is, what other cars like yours 
are selling for or what the wholesale or really the retail value of your car is on the market. So that's reasonable. I mean, the insurance company shouldn't be at a loss because you finance too much on the car. So your car's worth $18,000. You owe $25,000 on it. So there's a $7,000 gap. Where's that going to come from? Well, you probably don't have $7,000. And plus, you have to get a new car. So gap insurance steps in and pays that difference, pays the $7,000. Now, there are different sources of gap insurance. You know, you can actually buy it at the dealership or you can buy it from your insurance company if they offer it. Some insurance companies do and some don't. But just about every new or used car dealer will offer gap insurance if they have a finance department. It can get pretty expensive. That's one of those products that, you know, you just got to be careful not to pay too much for it. If you're paying $1,000 for gap, it's too much. You know, gap should be anywhere from four hundred to six, maybe six six fifty something, somewhere in that neighborhood. If you're paying more than that, you're probably paying too much for gap. Uh, let's see what else. When should you buy gap? Okay, well, if you don't pay anything down on your car and you're financing the whole thing, uh, you may have gotten a rebate or something like that. But especially if you actually have negative equity on your trade in then that amount's going to be carried over onto your new loan. I mean, a lot of these banks and credit unions, they'll loan up to 130% of MSRP. Let me ask you this. If you buy a new car and it lists for $35,000, what's that car worth? Is it worth $35,000? Well, you would hope so. If you're paying thirty-five dollars for it, the window sticker's thirty-five, then that's the market value for that car. But is it as soon as you drive off the lot, is it still worth $35,000 or is it worth less? Well, it's worth less. You know, it, depending on the type of vehicle that you're buying, if you're buying an F-250 diesel or something like that, sometimes certain cars go up in value. You know, a Porsche, something like that, they actually are worth more used than the dealer will sell them for because they, they won't charge over MSRP. So do you need gap insurance if you buy a Porsche? Probably not, because it's going to be worth more. You won't have a problem with your insurance company if it's stolen or, you know, if you total it. But the average car is going to depreciate in value. And so you probably ought to consider gap insurance if you would have a hard time coming up with the money to, you know, to pay off that difference. Uh, When else should you buy a gap? Well, you have a really long finance period. You know, if you're financing a car for 48 to 60 months, it's less necessary than if you're going 72, 84, 120. You know, because the car is going to depreciate. Plus, if you're going to be putting a lot of miles on the car, it's going to depreciate faster. So the type of car that you buy, let's say that you're buying just a common everyday SUV or crossover like a Hyundai Santa Fe or a a Ford Escape or something like that. Um, You know, they depreciate. All of them do in that category. I don't care if it is a RAV4 or a Honda CRV. There's just so many of them that uh, they do tend to go down in value pretty rapidly. And so if you finance a car like that for 72 months and don't pay anything down, a year or two from now, if you total that vehicle or it's, it's uh, stolen, then there's going to be a gap. And you might want to consider buying gap insurance to take care of that. But check with your insurance agent. Ask them if they sell gap and how does their gap work. 
because sometimes there's a separate deductible. Sometimes there are limits on the amount that you can get. Uh, so, you know, you just got to look at each individual gap policy and see what the rules are. You know, and basically the same rule applies to buying an extended warranty. I mean, if, uh, you know, five dollars $6,000 for an extended warranty, I've seen people pay that on their paperwork. You know, they come to, they call or something and they say, Lenny, I bought this vehicle at this dealership and they charge me $5,000 for an extended warranty. I have never seen an extended warranty, even on a diesel truck or a Corvette or a Porsche that cost $5,000. I mean, an extended warranty, 1500 to Maybe three thousand on a diesel or something like that. If it's a whole lot more than that, then you're getting hosed, and you need to check about you know whether that price is legit. Now, if it's at the dealership, if it's through like if you're buying a a Ford and you're buying a Ford warranty, those prices are pretty much set. You don't have to worry about somebody gouging you on something like that. But if it's some aftermarket warranty, they can charge whatever they want to charge whatever they can squeeze into your monthly payment that you feel comfortable with. Should you buy it? Well, you know, if it's price reasonable. But if would it be a real burden on you if your vehicle runs out of warranty and you've got to spend $2,500 on a, on a covered repair would you, or a non-covered repair? Would that be a burden? Then you might want to consider buying an extended warranty because you can go up to, in some cases, 8 to 10 years, 150,000 miles. Um, that's a good peace of mind for you. And let's say it costs you an extra $20, $25 a month on your monthly payment. Is it worth that to you? Well, you don't have to worry about it. A lot of people, it is. So these are just some things that you will pick up listening to My Car Guru. And if I can help you personally, call me 423-552-2020 or send me a text to that same number or send me an email to Lenny Lawson 2020 at gmail. And I will see you next time on the next My Car Guru.